Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. So today, we continue on with our sermon series on the book of Genesis. And when we last left off, we were dealing with the scripture passage where God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Thankfully, in the last moments, he didn't end up having to do that, so Isaac's still around for us to talk about in this section of Genesis. We're actually going to skip a chapter in between, And what happens in that chapter is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, passes away. And so we pick up here with what we read today. Abraham is now an old man, and he's looking to the fact that he's probably going to die before long. And he's quite concerned that his son Isaac does not have a wife. In particular, he is very concerned that he and Isaac live among a people known as the Canaanites. The Canaanites have no relationship to Abraham's tribe, and Abraham feels like if he dies, he might end up marrying one of these Canaanite women, which, in his opinion, would be a very, very bad thing. So he makes his servant take an oath that he will swear to go find a suitable wife for Isaac. The scripture tells us that when he takes this oath, the servant places his hand under Abraham's thigh. Fun fact... Thigh, in this particular instance, is a euphemism for genitals. So you just have to imagine this is where the servant is placing his hand because apparently this was a very common way in the ancient world to take oaths because it represented how much you trusted the person who was taking the oath. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if we still took oaths this way today, nobody would take oaths. (laughs) Nobody would be president of the United States. They would just say, you know what? You can have it. If you're willing to do the oath, you can take it. (laughs) So Abraham's servant, he starts traveling, and he goes to the land of Abraham's ancestors. And he ends up on the outskirts of a city called Nahor. And he decides, as opposed to going into the city, I'm going to stay outside next to the well. Now, this is not because he is thirsty and wants something to drink. This is actually a very calculating move on the part of the servant. In both ancient and modern societies that lack water delivery systems, meaning they don't have pipes running the water to their houses, people tend to spend a great deal of time transporting water back and forth from the source, like a well or a river or a lake, to their house. Generally speaking, the people in the ancient world who were tasked with water transportation were women. And this is still very much the case today in developing world countries. If you go to places like Haiti or any place that doesn't have a standard water delivery system, you'll see women carrying the majority of water. So the servant knows that if he just sits there and waits next to the well, that eventually the women of the city are going to start coming out and they're going to start gathering water for their families. So he figures this is a pretty good way to scope out my options for Isaac. Well, the first person who comes out, coincidentally, is Rebecca. And Rebecca 
is related to Abraham. He's actually Abraham's niece, his brother's daughter. Now, Rebecca doesn't know the servant, and the servant doesn't really know Rebecca. But when Rebecca gets there, he, she offers to get this guy a drink of water. And then she goes one step further and says that she's more than happy to water his camels. Now, you have to realize this is no small task. A camel drinks an average of 14 gallons of water in a single sitting. And according to the scripture, he's brought 10 camels with him. So you do the math on that one. She's willing to draw 140 gallons of water from a well for a guy she doesn't even know. Now, whether or not this actually happened is really very unimportant because the point of this story is to help us understand that Rebecca is very kind-hearted, very generous, and that she would make a wonderful wife for Isaac. As repayment for her kindness, the servant gives Rebecca some bracelets and a gold nose ring, which, by the way, I absolutely love this for all you parents out there trying to prevent your daughters from getting their noses pierced. They could just point to this scripture and say, well, Rebecca got her nose pierced, (laughs) and she's in the Bible. (laughs) But you do have to realize, I don't know if you know, like today they get like something pierced right here on the side of their nose, like This is like a nose ring, like something you would see on like a cow, you know, like that's the kind of stuff they used to wear back in the day, not something little like this. So it's a very different kind of nose ring even. Well, Rebecca is just so excited. She runs home and tells her family, shows them all the things they've gotten. And so her brother Laban comes out and says, hey, why don't you come inside? You can stay the night. And as soon as the servant walks in the door, he makes a proposal. He says, let Rebecca come with me We'll go back to where Abraham lives, and she will become the wife of Isaac. Now, today we are talking about arranged marriage, and I would assume that for the majority of you, you did not get into your marriages because they were arranged. So I'm also going to assume that this is kind of a foreign concept to you. So I need to walk us through some of the steps of how this works. Normally, in an arranged marriage, when two families are trying to figure out whether or not they want to agree to an arranged marriage, they will get together the two families to determine if there's a match. They want to make sure that the two children work well together, but they also want to make sure that the families work well together. Now, in this instance, there's actually a blood relationship between the two of them, so there's already a common bond. But what I want you to understand is it's very unusual for a family just to let their daughter go off with some stranger who they just met without first having met the groom and the groom's family. Now the reason why they're willing to do this is because Rebecca's family is actually motivated by greed. They know that if they accept this marriage proposal that it's going to benefit them a great deal financially. And indeed, after accepting the marriage proposal, the servant gives them what the Hebrew says is costly ornaments. And this is also known as the bride price. It's the price that the groom will pay to the bride upon agreeing to the marriage. So the next day, the servant, he's getting everything together, he's getting ready to take Rebecca back to Isaac, and then the mother and the brother, they start to stall. They're looking for ways to prevent him from leaving. Now this is not because they want to hold on to Rebecca. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with that. They want to extort more money from the servant, because as soon as he's gone, the money's gone also. 
So what they do is they invoke what is known as the rite of preparation. The rite of preparation was a period of time where a bride had the opportunity to prepare for the marriage. Usually it was about 12 months. And so by invoking the rite of preparation, saying, oh, just let Rebecca stick around for 10 days, even though they've already agreed to let her go, they're trying to make him stay so that they can actually get him to pay them more. Now, the servant just comes out and says, no, that's not happening. We're leaving now. And they say, well, they have one weapon left in their arsenal. And they say, well, let's ask Rebecca her opinion, because truly she's the only one who has the right to forego the right of preparation. Now, what you may have noticed is up until this point, her family has not asked her opinion once about anything in any of this arrangement. Up until this point, she has had no say whatsoever in the matter. And this lack of input by the bride was actually not uncommon in the ancient world. Women often had very little say in their own arranged marriages. And the reason why they had very little say is important. But before I get into that, I do want to say that for us in the modern world, particularly for women in America who are treated as equals and who are expected to determine their own romantic relationships. I think this idea can be rather jarring to us. I mean, can we agree that that's, it's something that sounds rather foreign to us? But you have to appreciate the circumstances of women in the ancient world. Marriageable age in the ancient world was about 12 or 13 years old. Now, that might sound kind of young, but when the average lifespan is about 30, 12 is half your life. So it would make sense that they would want to marry off their daughters young because you just don't have a whole lot of time to live. But at 12 or 13, you're probably not in the best place to make a decision about who you should and should not marry. So this is why the parents did most of the legwork. They wanted to make sure that you were getting involved with the right family. Arranged marriage is really the product of two distinct factors. One is lifespan limitations, which we just talked about. And the second has to do with maintaining a clean lineage, which means that you don't want people marrying outside of your tribe, particularly your children. And the reason why people were motivated to do this is because they wanted to keep their wealth in the family. It's a big reason why Abraham wants Isaac to marry someone within his own tribe. So if you're imagining Rebecca as being this 20-some-year-old woman, you need to revise that backwards. She's probably 12 or 13 years old, and she has to make a choice. She can leave today with this servant who she met yesterday and go marry some guy she doesn't even know, or she can stay with the family that she's known her entire life. Interestingly, Rebecca chooses to leave. Don't even think twice about it. She's like, I'm out of here. See you guys later. Now, this tells us something very important about Rebecca and her family. It tells us that Rebecca is very brave, very adventurous, and like many 12 or 13-year-olds, a bit naive. But if she's willing to leave with this servant and marry some guy she's never met, it also tells us that living at home with her mother and brother is probably not all fun and games. She's tired of hauling water back and forth from the well to the house and not being shown very much appreciation. She wants to have a new adventure, something completely different in her life. And so the scripture tells us that the first time that she and Isaac meet, that actually they're quite taken with each other. And having met only moments earlier, 
they embrace this new life together as husband and wife. Now, because you and I, we have found our relationships based on a very different kind of formula than arranged marriage, this is hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. There's thoughts that go through our minds like, how do they even intend to make it work in the long run if they don't really know each other before getting married? In the United States, we spend an average of 2.8 years getting to know a person before we get engaged to them. So we spend about three years together before we feel we are ready to make a lifetime commitment. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense to me. You probably want to get to know someone before you're getting into something that serious. But when you start to compare the divorce statistics between arranged and non-arranged marriage, arranged marriage has a much better outcome. In the United States, in 2013, the divorce rate was 50%. So one out of every two marriages ended in divorce. And now I need to take a step back here real quick because I'm going to be talking about divorce. If you have been through a divorce, I'm not up here to judge you or make you feel bad about that. That's not the point of this sermon at all. The point of this sermon is to discuss the culture of how we choose our mates versus cultures around the world who do it a little bit differently. But I need to talk about the divorce rates because it has a lot to do with how we do things in our culture. So just bear with me for a second. It's not the point of the sermon. So as I said, one out of every two marriages end in divorce. That comes down to 6,646 divorces per day. And if you actually break that number down further, you find out that of first marriages, that's 41% of first marriages, it's 60% of second marriages, and 73% of third marriages ending in divorce. Whereas globally, the divorce rate for arranged marriage is 6%. And if you look at India, which has the most arranged marriages anywhere in the world, it's 1.1%. Now, that's not the entire story, as you all probably know, because there's social issues that come into play here. Socially, it is acceptable for us in this country to get divorced, whereas over in India, it is socially stigmatized. You cannot get divorced without being a huge, huge problem. And I'm not trying to get up here and say arranged marriage is the best way to go with things. I'm not saying that at all. You can read articles online about arranged marriages that were absolutely awful. Now, it's hard to say what the divorce rate would be if there wasn't the social stigma, but... It depends on the sociologists you read. It's usually anywhere between 15 and 25%. So even at the high end, that's half of what we are. And the reason for this is because people who are in arranged marriages report much higher levels of happiness than those in non-arranged marriages. In fact, one study I read said that people in arranged marriages are 34% happier than those in non-arranged marriages. Now, what accounts for this discrepancy? Well, when it comes down to it, when you're trying to understand the difference, you need to realize that we're talking about two very different kinds of love. In arranged marriage, we're talking about a love that is known as companionate love. It's the love of companionship. Whereas in non-arranged marriages, which is how most of us find our mates here in America, that is referred to as passionate love. Now, in America, when we want to find somebody we want to be with, we're looking for a spark, something that draws us in, an energy that draws us to that person, right? You all know what I'm talking about. 
And as a result, we report much higher levels of happiness in the early years of our marriage than those who are in non-arranged marriages. So for the first three or four years of our marriage, we tend to be happier. But as you all know, marriage is a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> and so in the long term, after the first few years, that passionate love tends to dip off. And our levels of happiness decline significantly, which is a big reason why we have a 50% divorce rate. Whereas when you're dealing with arranged marriages, from day one, they're developing this love known as companionate love because they know they have to be companions if they're going to make this thing work. So this slow-burning kind of practical love of companionship is very different from the intensity of the passionate love we crave in our culture. And yet, what's fascinating is that the vast majority of people who are in arranged marriages report that they develop a passionate love for their partner over a long period of time. So they begin with this foundation of companionate love, the love of companionship, and then over time, that gives way to a passionate love or romantic love. But the inverse is true in our culture. We begin with passionate love, and then we have to transition into companionate love. And if our divorce statistics tell us anything, it's much harder to transition from passionate love to companionate love than the other way around. And the question is, why? Why is it so challenging for us to do it the way that we do it? Why is it better to begin with a foundation of companionate love and allow us to have this long-term prospect of a marriage, because that's what it is. When you begin with that foundation, it gives you a much better long-term prospect for that marriage staying together than when we begin with a foundation of passionate love. Well, to tell you why I think this is the case, I need to tell you about the art of Picasso. Yes, the art of Picasso. That's the answer to the question. I need to come down here because I need to tell you, I need to show you some things. All right. So, those of you who know anything about Picasso, you are probably aware that Picasso was an artistic prodigy. He produced works of art at the ages of 14 and 15 that rival that of Michelangelo and Raphael. This is one of his most famous pieces. This is a piece known as First Communion, and it was a piece that he painted at the beginning when he was 14 and he finished when he was 15. It's hard to believe that somebody who's 14 or 15 years old could produce a piece of art that looks like this. This is what set him on the international stage. It's what allowed him to have the reputation that he had as an artist. He learned this style of art from his father, whose style can best be described as academic realism. So during his adolescence, Picasso basically learned this classical style of art, and it showed and demonstrated that he understood the art history that came before him. One could say that in a sense, during this early formative period of his life, he conformed to the standards of the art world. But then, after a number of years of producing this kind of normal art, the art that we would expect, he started to branch off and develop his individuality. He started experimenting with blue pigments. This became known as his blue period. 
and red pigments. This became known as his rose period. And eventually, he delved into cubism, which is the style for which he is most famous. This painting right here is called The Three Musicians. And this painting is probably one of his best examples of the cubist style that he created. And it's one of the biggest reasons why he is so well known today. It is not for First Communion. It is for paintings that look like this. Yet what you have to realize is that Picasso could not have done work like this as an individual. He couldn't have found his individuality unless he had conformed early on to the standards of the art world. You see, I think a lot of people think to be an individual, you have to avoid conformity at all costs. But here's the thing. If you don't know what people have done before you, then you can never truly understand what it means to be an individual. It's like trying to create a new type of light bulb without understanding how all the previous light bulbs work. It just doesn't make any sense. You have to know and conform to the ideas of those who came before you so that you can become an individual. Now, the same is true in our romantic relationships. You've got to follow me on this analogy here. So in our romantic relationships, we all want to be individuals. We all want to find that perfect person, right, who we can have this passionate relationship with and have that fairy tale ending that lasts happily ever after. And do you know where we get that from? The movies. That's where we get it from. That is primarily where our idea of love comes from, is from cinema. We don't want to conform. We don't want to just take anybody and have us paired together, right, like in an arranged marriage. they got to be perfect for us, just that right person. But you have to realize that the way we're approaching love and relationships, it's like Picasso trying to become a cubist before he's learned how to paint like the masters before him. We are trying to create long-term relationships in our culture without understanding the kind of love that it takes to really make it work. We're trying to be individuals before we have conformed. And what I'm pretty much saying is that instead of looking for passion, maybe what we should be looking for in our relationships is companionship. Now, they, that might not sound like something that is wonderful, like the movies, right? Because we want that romantic love. But the truth is that with a 50% divorce rate, you can see how looking for passion generally ends up. And it's because we haven't set for ourselves a strong foundation in companionship that we can never figure out how to be individuals and really love one another. And so with a 50% divorce rate in America, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that there are some of you in here who are probably really struggling with your relationships and your marriages. And I think that all of us in here need to take a note from Rebecca and Isaac. Maybe we are trying to fix the wrong things in our relationships that are broken. Maybe instead of trying to inject passion back into our relationships, perhaps we should focus on nurturing the love of companionship that we have for one another. Because I think that if we can create this strong foundation in companionship, then we might be able to reignite that passion that we have lost 
in our relationship. So I want you to know something as I end today. That my door is open. And that if you're struggling, please come see me. Because a big reason why we struggle in our relationships is because our culture has kind of set us up for failure. And so I believe that if we can learn how to create this strong foundation of companionship, if we can learn how to conform, then we'll eventually become the individuals with the passion that we want to have. So if you're struggling, please come see me and know that we are here to show you love and to help you through. Because I believe when two people want to make it work, it can. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.